Producing Crime features influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Natalie Hiltz is an inspector with Peel Regional Police Service in Ontario, Canada, and an advocate for evidence-based policing across the country. We talk about the emergence of evidence-based policing in Canada and her research into the overlap of violent crime offenders and victims in her community. Hi, I'm your host Jerry Ratcliffe and welcome to Reducing Crime. While the theme to the last episode was the long-running Aussie police drama Blue Healers, regular listeners will detect we are back to the podcast's original theme, the outro to the classic British police series, The Sweeney. This 1970s police drama featured members of London's armed robbery and violent crime unit called The Flying Squad. Shunning the crashing excitement of the opening tune, the theme playing over the closing credits is more melancholy, reflecting that in many episodes, as well as in policing generally, not everything goes to plan or ends well, regardless of the protagonist's best efforts. It seems appropriate. By the way, If you're confused by the show's name, then you have to Google Cockney Rhyming Slang, where a speaker will replace common words with unrelated phrases that just happen to rhyme. So Flying Squad becomes the fictional barber Sweeney Todd. That in turn gets shortened to the Sweeney. Flying Squad, Sweeney Todd, the Sweeney. If you're from the East End of London, look, it all makes complete sense. Anywho... Back in August, I headed up to Canada and more specifically Dundas, a delightful little town just outside Hamilton, Ontario, for my nephew's wedding. Congratulations, Peter and Emily. And because she lives just around the corner, it was also a great opportunity to catch up with Natalie Hiltz. Natalie has just moved up to duty inspector, having until recently been a detective sergeant working in the intelligence support services for Peel Regional Police Service in Ontario. She served in various uniform and gang unit capacities, as well as conducted several undercover operations for vice, drugs and homicide. She's a former member of the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing's Executive and Advisory Boards and has travelled widely across Canada to advocate for evidence-based practices. Natalie was instrumental in organising the first evidence-based policing conference in Canada in partnership with the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police and the Cambridge Centre for Evidence-Based Policing. This, and for her work more widely in evidence-based policing in Canada, has earned her a nomination for the Governor-General's Meritorious Service Award. Natalie has an undergraduate degree from Carleton University and postgrad qualifications from both Dalhousie University and the University of Cambridge. Her Cambridge research was recently published with co-authors Matt Bland and Jeff Barnes in an article titled Victim-Offender Overlap in Violent Crime. In it, they highlight the disproportionate level of harm associated with a small percentage of people who are both violent crime offenders and violent crime victims. In this episode, Natalie discusses the environment for evidence-based policing in Canada, receptivity of police chiefs, whether recruits should be introduced to evidence-based policing concepts at the Academy, and her research on the victim-offender overlap. She also drops an insightful quote from Friedrich Nietzsche and lets slip that she has some sort of a covert past in insurance, like I'm not sure I really got to the bottom of that. For my part, I fake an understanding of 19th century German philosophy, had a really nice sandwich, and get distracted by a police horse. My girlfriend and I caught up with Natalie at the appropriately named bar restaurant Thirsty Cactus on the hottest day in living memory. I was sweating like a teenager watching his mum check his browser history. 
Like, like, what's your, what's, what's your poison? Like, what are we doing? First of all, what did you overdose on last night? Smithix oh, yeah, beer. Smithics. Yeah, too many Smithix. But then we combined it with gin and whiskey. Yeah. By the time we were drowning the whiskey late okay. at night, it was like one o'clock in <laughs> the morning, and I'm like dehydrated. <laughs> yes, I'm a damn rookie. I'm an idiot. This is true. But I can't then, take my drink. Are the Brits, aren't they this supposed is, to know how to drink? It's been a long time since you've been able to hang out with your family. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that's true too. Yeah. I work so far away. This is like two seconds from my house. I actually did a surprise visit on my kids on the way here, just quick. Uh -huh. So I whipped open the door, and they're like, "Who is it?" And I caught them ordering Uber Eats. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And How old are they? 16 in November and 18. So one's in uni second university and the other one so is... So let me guess, the, the fridge is full of food. Stacked. Right. <laughs> like stacked full of food. Like there couldn't be any more food. Okay, and what's your, what's the pick What's the pick here for salads? Uh, toast for you, sir. Cranberry and brie sandwich, please. It was recommended and it sounds yeah, lovely. Sure. It's a good one. Um, it is, it's amazing. What, what's interesting is your experience is probably absolutely everybody else who's trying to be innovative around urban um, space policing, right? Yeah. I felt like urban space policing, at least in North America, and you know, I don't know about the Canadian experience, had some momentum and then COVID kicked in. Yeah. And then in much of you know, America, crime started going through the roof and we went back into reactive panic mode. And it's like, people's interest in evidence-based policing has declined. Plummeted. Right. Plummeted, yeah. it, What's it been like in Canada? I think it's a, a pretty similar experience across the board. I think then when you run into any type of emergency planning, and pandemic planning would certainly be part of that, people don't have time for extras. So I think that really policing has gone into survival mode. Before, where there was a good, solid, receptive environment for evidence-based policing, there's been a huge lull now. You think that there was originally a, a receptive attitude for it before the pandemic? That's a tricky question. Right now, I think there's um, competing police philosophies that are embedded in different police generations that a lot of the older police generations, um, many of them ascribe to that really ultra-traditional policing paradigm that we all know. It's what makes it easy, right? If in doubt, you know, as somebody once said at a conference at Cambridge, who I know you've been to, you can fail in policing as long as you fail conventionally. Yeah, nothing wrong with it, exactly. So it's safe, it's comfortable. The one thing that police hate is change. You know, sticking to stuff that doesn't make you feel vulnerable, it makes you feel comfortable, especially during these times that are quite volatile and feel quite unstable. It's human nature and it makes a lot of sense. Before the pandemic... Right, we're never going to get that because of Hoon just driving past at Warp 9 in that wagon. <laughs> yes, the before pandemic time in Canada, I know you were involved in the early stages of the Canadian Society of Heaven Space Policing. Yes. And I know that you've been working much more recently with the Ontario Association, Association of, of Chiefs of Police. Police. Yeah, yeah, you got it. And that's interesting because that's working directly with the police chiefs, which is an interesting level to come in at because I think a lot of the associations you know, it's working with frontline officers or mid-level supervisors, but you're working directly with the police chiefs at that level, right? Is that a different experience, having trying to move them towards evidence-based policing? I gotta say that we're really lucky in Canada that um, I think we can be very different, but very similar. I mean, the policing here feels kind of similar, probably a little less violent, right? Yes. Possibly at times a little more cerebral. Yes. But I mean, this is one of the things, having traveled, is that the fundamentals of the job are surprisingly similar. It's Absolutely. dealing with people's dramas and issues when you have no idea of the background and it's been a drama that's taken 10 years to kick off between their neighbor dispute or somebody's got mental health problems 
and you're just trying to wing it and figure out the solution. Getting involved in the police executive program through the University of Cambridge. So that's the Masters in... Applied Criminology and Police Management. At the University of Cambridge with Larry Sherman, yes. Because what it did is you're sitting in a room full of police professionals with a lot of experience. Hong Kong, Australia, Canada, Britain. And what you soon realize is everyone has the same problems. The same political pressures. That's, the that's same my problems. point. The job is surprisingly it is, similar. It is surprisingly similar. And I don't know what I expected, but I didn't expect that. What that made me learn is human nature is human nature. You know, as long as we have police officers and we're dealing with human beings, the problems are all going to be relatively similar. Right. The problems with the media, politicians, public perception, it's all the same. It's the same issues. But that's also good news for things like evidence-based policing as a movement because, exactly. it, because you can pick up things from one country and take them to another and, you know, they're certainly worth thinking about and trying, right? I often hear people say, oh, that wouldn't work here. And I'm kind of thinking, are you using that as an excuse just to do nothing? It's very easy to find 10 officers to tell you how you cannot do something and a lot more difficult to find the one that will tell you and inspire you so that you can. We can be a real pessimistic lot, I guess, full of <laughs> cynicism. So That's what draws me to it. <laughs> right? The evidence-based policing piece is pretty incredible because you realize there is direct applicability between countries, between neighborhoods, between police services. So the police chiefs you've been dealing with, we'll talk prior to the pandemic and before things went all horribly wrong. Yeah. You know, there was receptivity through the Ontario Association of Absolutely. Chiefs of Police. Absolutely there is. What is it about the chiefs? Is there a different pitch to get them to buy in? No, I think there's some pushing and pulling going on. You know, these generational differences where we've got some police leadership that is really ascribing to these ultra-traditional police philosophies and paradigms of the way we've kind of done our business for quite a number of years. How we've always done it. Exactly. Yeah. Luckily enough, we've got some real talent across the country and the police chiefs level as well where there is definitely a band of strong police leadership that is extremely innovative, who are pushing the boundaries of creativity and approaching problems in new ways. But that's not going to be all of them, right? So you're, you're going to run into roadblocks at places? Yeah. Is there a particular technique that works better in terms of selling the message with chiefs than with... Yeah, there is. How do you do that? I mean, if we can hear it over the sound of the refrigerated truck that's decided <laughs> to park right next to us. You need to find ways of marketing evidence-based policing to the police psyche. There has to be a different way to sell it. Because I can sell the message to mid-level police commanders by saying, hey, this could be something that could get you promoted. But when you're a police chief, that's not a message that's really going to fly because those guys are already at the top of the organization. When I started to go outside of policing and started to really look around, I realized there's a lot of articles and a lot of journal articles and a lot of research and, and, and so many things going on inside of policing. But if you are siloed within your own police organization and you make no effort to self-educate or look around you and see how policing overlaps and connects with different systems within your, your community, you're only going to see one side. You're a detective sergeant with... Repeal Police. Repeal Regional Police is a fairly large organization. How many have you got sworn? We're around the third or fourth largest municipal service in the country. I think around just under 3,000 mark. That's a big department in, in, in North America. It's big for Canada. So your role at the moment is? Intelligence services. And what does that actually entail? We deal with a lot of joint forces operations, organized crime, traditional organized crime. 
anything to do with large-scale projects for drug guns. What's interesting is that you say that there isn't much evidence-based policing around that area, but that's insightful in itself, right? So, so much evidence-based policing has been around patrol operations. That's right. But this goes back to what we're talking about. I think we've got lots of generations of officers that are coming up through the ranks who are starting to look around, and there's a curiosity about the craft of policing. And you looked into the intelligence side, for example, and there just isn't a lot of research around that field, is there? No, there isn't. But I think when we get back to coming up with marketable ways to get people to buy into what evidence-based policing has to offer, violence is, for any evidence-based police research, low-hanging fruit. That's why I chose to do my research on the victim-offender overlap. I didn't come at it from a traditional journey. It was it was different. What were you doing before you joined the job? <laughs> what wasn't I doing before I joined the job? Oh, that opened some doors right there. Yeah, right? I since I was Should, 14. We, I've done it all. Do we have to do some really yeah, interesting <laughs> internet searches here? <laughs> I was like, oh. Peel Regional Police know something. How, how good were their background checks? <laughs> Pretty good. Oh, they, uh, they found it, did they? Made it, yeah. No, I... Uh, I was in advertising. That went surprisingly lame considering yeah, the lead up that you were pitching at us there. It's lame. My, my life's not that exciting. Get the feeling the stuff you're not telling us, but yeah. <laughs> Is it the facial expressions? <laughs> they always work well for podcasts. <laughs> so you were in advertising and you joined the job. Change your name, move countries. Move countries. Yeah. Made sure they didn't have access to my record. No, I'm kidding. Oh, this looks great. Thank you very much. Good looking food here. What did you order? That's amazing. Thank you. Wavis red chairs. Oh my god, it's like a work of art. That looks incredible. Oh my god. Yeah? Oh yeah. The food is great. But seriously, the whole marketing piece I think is like so important. I mean, you really got to start to think about something that people are going to be interested in to even get engaged on a surface level. Like there has to be a hook, right? But it can't always be violence. So is violence the way in to get people to buy into other areas? Yes. So we demonstrate the value through violence prevention or at least evidence and then we transition that to saying look we can also look at things like recruitment or dealing with minorities, yeah. community policing or here in Canada it would be First Nation people, yeah. right? And so there are particular kind of ways to use evidence at different aspects of the policing world. It needs a seed to grow from, right? You've got to plant a seed and you've got to give it the right conditions to grow. Where there's a, there's a an easily identifiable potential benefit to going through all this extra work and abandoning your comfort zone and everything that you know that's comfortable and going to a place where you feel vulnerable, you don't know it all, where you can dare greatly and fail greatly. Oh no 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 no! There's there's no failing allowed in policing. You know that. Well, I think that's changing. If we don't fail, you don't try. If we're not allowed to fail, you don't try anything. People are risk averse and they're worried about failing at anything. So half the time we don't try stuff. I think that's changing. The craft of policing certainly does require and demand some level of risk and vulnerability. And I think evidence-based policing is, is one of those areas where it, it's worth daring greatly for. And one of the slides I use in my presentations are these baking fails, hashtag fail. And my favorite one is one of these beautiful cupcakes that's been decorated as Cookie Monster. And it's the one you saw on Pinterest. And then you go and you try to apply the same ingredients and try to do exactly that. And it comes up looking like a horrible alien. It looks terrible. Yeah, but the solution to that is just tell people you were pitching for alien to begin with and just <laughs> never show them the Cookie Monster picture. I mean, that was, that was an easy solution right there. We'll apply that to policing, right? right. Yeah. So you're going after something that looks like this. You have all the best intentions in the world, 
but we don't go back to have a look to see after we've done our own recipe and we've applied ourselves to produce this wonderful thing, we never go back to back check it to see is it exactly doing what we intended and, and, and designed it to do, we never do it. Well it's funny you say that because I've produced a video documentary that's on YouTube called Oscar One about the Kensington Transit Corridor Study. And that was pretty much the same thing. We designed a great cookie monster looking cake and then things changed and we couldn't run the randomized trials we wanted to. But we got something else out of it. Yeah. And we got something really insightful in terms of understanding how officers feel about dealing with different kinds of groups and different kinds of social service providers in the largest heroin market on the east coast of the United States. So. Wow. So it, you can find that little silver lining, but you have to be out there to try things. You have to have the inspiration, the excitement, the curiosity, the ability to want and be creative. So I got the sense that you got some of that inspiration from Cambridge. Tell me a little bit about your experiences there. Cambridge is probably one of the greatest things I'll achieve in my lifetime. You know, there's some real milestones for me, and that is certainly one of my life milestones. And you picked up a master's in, remind me again what it was? Applied Criminology and Police Management. Just the notion of having applied criminology has probably surprised some <laughs> people, right? right? You can I'm actually use this shit. Yeah. <laughs> Obscure theories in the middle of nowhere, we can use that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. sometimes, yeah. It's, a, it's amazing, we can apply it, who knew? Most people are not going to have that opportunity to go how do they get that same insight and understanding? How do they get that glimpse into that different world of what policing could be if they don't have the opportunity? I mean, you know, to get to go to somewhere like Cambridge. How do you sell it to other people in your agency if they don't get, they haven't been to Cambridge? If you are invested and completely engaged in your job and you are having a look at what we've been doing and you have serious questions about how we're doing it, because boots to the ground, you can actually see, is it working or not working? That's an interesting approach. I'll do it in rooms when I'm doing training in this area. Has anybody ever kind of thought about there are some things that we do and you just wonder why the hell are we doing it that way? Every single hand time. goes up. But this is that hook to kind of say, okay, here's the mechanism to change that. It's a mechanism of change. As opposed to just whining about why the fuck are we always doing this this way, here do is the mechanism, to, here's this it. process to engage with that you can actually make this better instead of just whining about it for the next 30 years. That's a good point and I think Cambridge is that tool to help you explore different ways to, to understand where the opportunities are and where there are mechanisms that you can influence to spark change. So you're teaching on the program at Cambridge now. What have you learned from the process of teaching other people? We all have the same problems. We all have the same things we need to learn. We all need to start expanding our minds about what the possibilities are in bringing about more hope, inspiration, and change in what our desired future should and can look like. That hope, inspiration, change starts to sound like a political logo, doesn't it, at that point? Yeah. It, does a, it does a little bit, but... Is that, is that what we need on posters? Evidence-based policing, hope, inspiration, and change. You know what, we're close. I think we're close. I wonder in so many organizations that there's one or two people who think like this, but one, they don't have a mechanism like evidence-based policing to move forward. And secondly, what places like Cambridge or the Societies of Evidence-Based Policing or the work you're doing for the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police is you give people that collegiality that almost says you're not alone in thinking we could do shit differently. Do you know what I mean? That sense that you know, I'm not the freaky weirdo at work. As actually, there are other people like me. I mean, we may still be the freaky weirdos, right? But it's nice to have that companionship of other people who go, 
oh, that shit happens in my organization and I can't get people to pay attention. That's huge. I have at times felt like a complete freaky weirdo. It's nice to know you're in company, right? It is nice to know you're in company. <laughs> I equate it to like finding your tribe. You know, sometimes being an advocate of a different way of doing business finds you in a very socially isolated, alienated, and, and rejected kind of place in your career. Well, Machiavelli wrote about that 500 years ago, is that you try to bring in change, you may only get lukewarm support because a lot of people are vested in the old ways of doing yeah. things. That's the mechanism they were successful under. Yeah. Because if you think about it, police chief, they were successful under the old regime. So they, they have little incentive to take on something new because yeah. it didn't help them. No, and that's where really hats off goes to the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing, which I was a part of for a couple of years, was such an important stage of growth because it really started to validate people, again, who were thinking differently and connecting us. When the history of evidence-based policing is written at some point in the future, I think there is a lot to be said for the work of people like Renee Mitchell and Alex Murray and Laura Huey Absolutely. in terms of the, the time and energy and effort and the commitments and the sacrifices that they all made to start something that they cared about. Absolutely. All credit. And so it's interesting to see that we're in the second generation now of where the societies are going and if we still need the societies or if there's a place for them to become unified or if we need to refocus away from the societies to things like the Association of Chiefs of Police that you're working with. Perhaps I, I don't know where that's going but I, I, I certainly think we have to recognize the sacrifices that people made early but then it, it, it's interesting post-pandemic where, where it might go. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It absolutely does make sense. Um, but yeah, like things grow and things evolve for better or for worse. And I think the fact that evidence-based policing has been able to grow from that seed that she planted, that's all Laura Huey. I don't know if the societies will survive or if there is a better place to instead think about infiltrating research and evidence-based policing into the existing organizations, which is why I'm so interested in your experience working with the Interro Association of Chiefs of Police. Because I think getting in directly with the decision makers may be a more effective way than having our own separate clubs. So if you can influence the minds and hearts of people from lower frontline ranks and to influence upward. I think a lot of frontline people just don't think evidence-based policing is relevant to them. I mean, you're a sergeant, which is not frontline, but you're very closely connected to the frontline. I don't expect a frontline guy or gal. We can use guy in a non-gender specific okay, sense. Okay, good. That's where I was going. I don't think that they have the time, the emotional or mental space or to really start to ponder life's issues. I mean, but I think that those growing minds and that growing work experience is really important. You might not completely understand how it relates to what you're doing, but eventually you will. I had this old sergeant who was one of the teachers when I went to the Ontario Police College when I was a rookie. He gave me this quote, and the quote meant nothing to me. And it bothered me that it didn't mean a thing to me. And the quote he took was from Frederick Nietzsche, Beyond Good and Evil, which is obviously pretty heavy when you're 25. Pretty heavy when you're in your 50s. <laughs> right? So the quote is, He who fights with monsters should see to it that he too does not become a monster. And when you gaze into abyss, that abyss also gazes into you. Yeah, it's great. A profound thing that totally escaped me. It was way over my head at 25. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of respect for this guy, and I knew he was trying to tell me something that I didn't understand. I looked at this quote on my locker for probably a good four years before I could completely understand what he was trying to tell me, which is kind of that learning curve that officers go through where you're kind of at the high end at four years. 
I have little interest most of the time in speaking to new recruits because their brain is just too much. I want to make sure I don't fuck up. I want to. I want to throw the lights on and the sirens on, and I want to race it. Yeah, you've got. You have to work that out of your system before you can have a few years in and go. Okay, been there, done that. This is what the shit is for the next twenty-six years. At some point, you've kind of got to go. And not everybody will take this route. That quote is only going to make sense to a few people. Some people will go their entire career and not understand its significance. But when they do, it could be an entrance requirement for some of these other concepts that people are going to get exposed to. Because if you understand that, you're ready to embrace with the new ideas. When I was in recruiting for five years, and I've hired, been involved in hiring about 45 officers for my police service. I passed that on and I photocopied that and every time we hired somebody I quietly inserted that into their employment package. I don't think I've actually ever mentioned it to anybody. But you have a whole evidence-based policing piece too and talking about new recruits and training and, and you know where should we start inserting that to, to grow seeds. Should we be introducing re recruits to evidence-based policing? That's the question you're asking, right? I think yes and no. Yes, it should be a part of common language and, and they should understand for sure what that is. But do they really know what it means? They won't know exactly what it means. But here's the thing. All I can do is equip you with all the tools that you need to do your job. Whether then it's a baton it? or whether it's, you know, a knowledge of a really important policy. And I think evidence-based policing is part of that. So there is scope for people to get these higher level concepts even at the academy? I think so. Some people will get it. So even with the evidence-based policing piece, do you not push it forward because only some people will get it? No, it's all about planting seeds. The problem with new recruits is your first four years are about assimilation. You assimilate as much as you can. So not the best environment to question police practices. Right. So we're always saying to people, listen to this and think about this. Yeah. It's probably not going to make any sense to you right now, but in about four or five years' time, when you've had enough of going to the same calls for service, the same places, dealing with the same shit in ways that don't seem to work, come back and find us <laughs> where it makes more sense. I guess that's a good way of putting it, Jerry. <laughs> I want to pivot for a moment to the research that you did. Mainstream criminologists, and that's like using bad language around this podcast, but mainstream criminologists have looked at some of the offenders as victims approach, but you came at it from a policing perspective, which I thought was interesting. Yes, it was policing, but I think that I'd be remiss if I didn't go a little bit more further back. I grew up in the community that I'm policing, so I lived and breathed those streets that I now police. So I've experienced my community on both sides of that fence. So as an officer, I do have that police perspective, but I'm also coming at it from, hey, I grew up with a lot of kids that made bad decisions and ended up in jail or died or did. Kids did, make bad decisions, but only make, some of them end up kids, in jail. Yeah, kids make bad decisions and adults and grow into adults that make bad decisions. So saying that's important because once you get into policing, if, you, if you've grown up somewhere, I've had the same officers peel going through my pockets and stopping me on the side of the road and now I do have a police lens with all this lived experience on the other side of it and now that's what I bring to the table. I think that's an important piece that is often lost when people are struggling to think about what research to do and what areas to bring research into. There isn't a magical formula. It's what have you seen? What have you done? Let's do research on that. I'm always surprised by people struggle to think of research ideas. No, no struggle. Just get up in the morning, wander around, do a couple of shifts, something will come up. 
At this point, I should bring up my academic soulmate, Dan Jones, Inspector Dan Jones out of the Edmonton Police Service. He also was a student at Cambridge. Both of us were very interested in the victim-offender overlap. He has the same lived life experience in terms of being a youth in a place that might have been rough, where he was exposed to kids and, and scenarios that were edgy and tough neighborhoods. So, you know, we've seen a lot of kids and young adults make really bad decisions who are in our own friendship circles. I think if you don't have some friends who have made bad decisions, yeah. you need to widen your scope of friends because they're, they're far friends. and away the most interesting people to hang out with sometimes, you know. <laughs> they definitely are. Yeah, we got, I got some pretty fruity and spicy friends from my childhood, you know, as, as we all tend to do. But Dan and I made me realize that it's our life experience and how we interpret our police work environment that led us down the same road to the same research. So what did you find? When you come into policing and you're dealing with offenders, you see the human side of that and the fact that some of these offenders are really great people that just maybe didn't have the same privilege as you did a good family, both parent, whatever it is that, that you got going on that they might not have. They don't go down the same path as you because of a combination of bad life decisions. So at the point when we start looking at policing as a service, because we don't call ourselves police force in Canada, we call ourselves a police service. You think about where you grew up, you think about those friends and all the trouble they would have gotten into and think, are we doing enough? Is what we're doing hurting? Is it helping? How does it help people thrive? Your research was focused on the harm that is associated with the victimization side of offenders. Mounted police, hello. Beautiful. Don't see police horses very often. Yeah, they're one of the only services that have these nowadays, yeah. So what I think is really interesting to come at the victim-offender overlap area is in policing terms, it gets into these interesting morality questions because you'll get some people in policing who get it and then other people who are like, you know, these people are offenders. What does it matter? Do you know what I mean? I think it's that gulf between people who see the world in shades of grey and people who see the world as everything is black and white. Well, think about it for a second. You are asking police officers and looking at the victim-offender overlap for them to understand that offenders are also victims. And you have to think what a, you know, a typhoid Mary paradox that is. Let's look at the police ethos as being crime fighters. Let's just look at that for one second. So I'm a crime fighter. Well, that means there's an enemy. You're fighting an enemy. So what I'm trying to say, we should be innovating for and treating precisely those people that we've declared a war on. That's a very difficult thing to ask an officer to do, and it does come to some moral ethical responsibilities well, there. Because there are some officers, mistaken, but there are some officers with the perspective that, that as victims they're less morally worthy because they're offenders. Yeah. And so it's interesting that you're doing this work from a policing perspective. I'm not agreeing with it, don't get me, understand me from that perspective, I think, but they're out there, right? I think that that is something that would be considered really ultra-traditional, I think, in this day and age. I think that where we're going is, is we're understanding that this notion of law enforcement intersects with the social determinants of health. In policing, we're crime fighting. We should be treating and innovating for exactly that, that enemy that we are told and trained to fight. So the pushback against that would be people saying, well, look, offenders who are themselves victims are probably less likely to report it to police. So one, it doesn't get onto the radar of many people in policing. And secondly, there's less incentive to deal with it because it's, it's not showing up. 
I think what's interesting is how to sell it to get people to understand it a little bit more because I think it's really important. People look at the moral worth of shooting victims depending on whether they've been, you know, shooters themselves. And yet, I think we had to be realistic that offenders as victims is so much of the community, the people that policing deals with on a regular basis. I don't know. This isn't my best work, I'm not going to lie. The paper or just... No, the convers- paper's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I've done presentations all over the country. I've presented to the chief's police. And I'm like, I am, I'm not doing it justice right now. I've overheated. Can I the pizza sweat? It's not a video <laughs> podcast. Uh, we will put a copy of your journal article on, uh, on the reducingcrime.com slash podcast web so people can access it. But I think that it, I think it's really worth reading because it's good research, it's good evidence-based policing. Have you had pushback from people in policing? Again, like traditional policing, there's not a big buy-in in evidence-based policing to begin with. So you have some segments of policing that would just reject that concept. But I think now there's a real awakening, I think, in terms of you look at George Floyd, you look at some of the major political international events that have happened that are forcing a different lens. Whether you want it or not, change has come to policing. So I think that people are more open than they would ever be. So I think post-pandemic, I think that the future of evidence-based policing in Canada is very bright. Things going on socio-politically all around the world have forced us to be better or want to be better and do things differently that are more professionalized, modern, innovative and I think that victim-offender overlap, acknowledging victim criminals and criminal victims in our client base is very real. And I think that this is a place we're going to. It's a guaranteed eventuality of us looking at things differently. Say you're in a chronic offender, but also a victim group. You're unlikely or you're less likely to come into the criminal justice system to resolve those issues. Because to some degree, they're going to be thinking that we're either not going to be supportive of them or that the system has largely failed them. So actually actively engaging about their victimization may just be the door that opens to more engagement and to interrupt some of the cycles of retaliation that we get between groups of offenders who go back and forth with each other. Yeah, maybe that that could be part of it for sure. Maybe the support services in our communities for victims isn't what it is for justice. If you're an offender, well, you're going to be incarcerated for a certain number of days of imprisonment. Well, if you're victimized, do you receive the corresponding number of days of support and intervention? I don't think we do. At a fundamental level, we do a lousy job of victim support to begin with. And then that's doubly so if the victims are also part of our offending, chronic offending community. They get doubly shafted, if you know what I mean. So there's a document here called Community Safety and Wellbeing Planning Framework that's come out of the provincial government here, and it's a platform that really is forcing all the community services to look at things a lot differently and how social supports can be bolstered and how we need to create more effective partnerships along a lifetime continuum of community client care where in the justice system it doesn't begin with being an offender you know in a life course of an offender you might interact with the justice system and police for most of your life before you start offending and it possibly gives you an animosity to the criminal justice system so you don't look to that system to provide victim support well no because you haven't gotten it and in the absence of victim support 
that probably just drives more offending. And serious offending. So the nexus for violence between victimization and offending is actually the highest for very violent offenses up to uh, and relating to homicides. So actually, rather than taking a moralistic standpoint and feeling like that these guys are less worthy for victim support because they're offenders, there is actually a business case to be made Absolutely. that actually addressing specifically the victimization of people who are chronic offenders is actually a good practice in terms of reducing overall crime in the community. There's two papers uh, and basically they create a fictional person but what they do is they start plotting their life course from when they're a child and not doing well in school to start getting involved in minor level uh, assaults and crime and, and, then, and then graduating up to committing a homicide and what it does is it places the dollar value on each service that that person would need or come in contact with and in the end of this you realize that there's a huge cost savings that's related to targeting violence more effectively so that you can more effectively provide interventions that are actually going to disrupt this cycle of violence and actually help people. But again, we've got to move beyond this notion that offenders are not worthy people of getting victim support. I think in some people, for some people in policing, that's still a bridge. I would agree with you. I think it's changing. I think we're going down a good path. How long it'll take to could do a complete metamorphosis, I'm not sure. But yeah, there's, there's definitely a police paradigm there that'll be difficult to crack. Well, I love the work that you're doing here in Ontario. You embraced the police chiefs with their first evidence-based policing conference during the pandemic, didn't you? Yeah, we did a virtual conference called The Evidence Will Move You. It was the first evidence-based policing conference in Canada, and it was in partnership with the Ontario Association Chiefs of Police and the Cambridge Centre for Evidence-Based Policing. So it was a huge moment for evidence-based policing in Canada. But we're due to have another one. We're just in the planning phases. You're due to have another one? Yeah, we're going to try and have another one in February 2022. Alas, the check is here. So that means by the rules of restaurants, we have to stop talking and bail out immediately. But uh, <laughs> for spending some time with me here as we fry gently in a... It's a hot one today. It's a roaster, isn't it? Yeah. I've sweat through my shirt. I haven't noticed. I can't... <laughs> <laughs> it's entirely inappropriately for me to suggest I've noticed. Uh, uh, it's a hot one. It's a sizzling hot day, put should, it that way. We should definitely finish the podcast on that. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get a call from social services. <laughs> Natalie, thank you ever so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was episode 39 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Canada in August 2021. I will post a link to Natalie's study on the podcast page at reducingcrime.com slash podcast. There you'll also find a transcript of this and every episode. A free spreadsheet of multiple choice questions for every episode is available for instructors. Just DM me on Twitter at Jerry underscore Ratcliffe or at underscore Reducing Crime. Be safe and best of luck.